Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. No, your ears do not deceive you. This is not Steve Anglesey. This is Eleanor Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. We're journalists at The New European, and we'll both be hosting the podcast this week while our editor takes some well-deserved time off. If you enjoy what we do, there really is no better way to support us than to subscribe. To make that decision easier for you, we have a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can purchase a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. You'll have unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. In this podcast episode, we'll be discussing the race for number 10 that's underway and we'll hear your thoughts on what Boris Johnson's next job could be. Then our colleague and journalist Klani Hanela will be joining us to discuss all things climate change and the battle to cool Athens as temperatures soar in Greece and across Europe. Then, as always, we'll be putting some more putrid pundits and malevolent ministers into the Hall of Shame. So, after Boris Johnson's half-resignation, where he forgot to say sorry but didn't forget to acknowledge his MP's errors for getting rid of him, he's after a new job. We asked listeners what they thought it should be, and we had loads of these, so thank you to everyone who wrote in. Carl says he's never done a proper job in his life, so why would he start now? I think he's talking about Boris Johnson and not himself. Uh, Gavin Smith said apologising individually to everyone in the country for the damage he has done. Potentially a bit optimistic, but feel free to keep hoping on that cause, Gavin. Uh, Anne Green said a public loo attendant. Andrew Woodhull said similar and wrote slopping out the latrines at Pankhurst, and I don't envy him for that. To which Chrissy Shipley said, I was going to say something like that, but with a toothbrush. Uh, Lee Bowyer, not the combative former footballer, presumably, but who knows, responded with a photo of Johnson decked out in a Royal Mail high-vis vest, suggesting he should work there with the caption, he claims he can deliver things. Uh, to which Howard Roy says, nope, not this. He couldn't find his arse with both hands, let alone deliver a parcel correctly. Barker said he should have the position of procreation minister. He task fuck-ups. Well, Nadim Zahaway did say this week that he would let Johnson back into the cabinet. Interesting. Although he's now out of the running, so there is, thankfully, a slim chance of that happening. Finally, a lot of you echoed this sentiment from Isaac Husk, who said, I didn't know prisoners could have jobs. Robin Baxter and Stephen Barber said sewing mail sacks. 
while Chris Padwick said prison librarian and Max said prison cook. To steal a line from the thick of it, sounds like a reimagining of the Shawshank Redemption, but with more shit and less redemption and all in all making for a film I really don't want to see. Now, before Klani Hanela joins the podcast to discuss the rising temperatures in Greece, she and Suna Erdem have put together an exceptional piece of journalism, which is accompanied by a special three-part pop-up podcast series. It's entitled The 27. Here's a trailer. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download wherever you found this episode. And if you want to help us do more work like this, then you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And now joining us on the podcast is the journalist and our colleague, Klani Hanela. She's written this week in our summer special issue on Greece's battle to cool Athens and why it isn't the only city that's preparing for a hotter world. Welcome back to the podcast, Kla. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. It's great to have you back on. Um, so before we talk about your piece, obviously the race to number 10 is, is underway. And it just so happens that we are having a very hot heat wave, as heat waves tend to be quite hot. Um, earlier this week, Sadid Javid was sweating away in his leadership grilling while dodging questions about tax havens. But he was literally, quite literally sweating as he sort of mopped his brow profusely and said, oh, it's quite hot. Um, ironically, then, it doesn't seem that many of the candidates have been talking or prioritizing climate issues. Is this, is this what you found? Yes, I mean, uh, it is quite funny that uh, Sajid Javid had his Nixon moment uh, during heatwave, which everyone seems to be ignoring. Um, it, it says very little about um, the seriousness of these candidates that they've said so little about the climate um, in the middle of a heatwave, if nothing else. And just as a note, you know, on the same day that Sajid Javid was launch, launching his campaign, only 70 MPs and peers turned up to an emergency climate briefing being held by uh, the chief scientific advisor, Patrick Valance. And the fact uh, that so few 
took part in this meeting gives you an indication of not only how um, little the attention the uh, candidates are paying to this, but perhaps more widely the parliamentary group as a whole. Um, but just looking at some of the candidates individually, if we start with Kemi Badnock, for example, she's quite worrying in the sense that she's saying that she would look again at the net zero targets and her argument actually is quite antediluvian i mean basically she's saying that you know if you want to save the climate there's going to be an economic cost i think this has been um you know this has been debunked by many people and um in fact this week business groups like amazon lloyds and coca-cola actually sent an open letter asking the candidates to protect net zero for the good of the economy and they were saying that you know they need more investment in low carbon infrastructure and they say that 56,000 new jobs have been um, created in clean industries since the uh, in the 20 months since the government's 10-point plan for the green industrial revolution was put forward. So that does kind of um, go against Kenny Badnock's argument. If you look then at an even more hardline position, that of course is Suella Braverman because she tends to do hardline quite well, the Attorney General. She's saying um, no to the net zero target she wants to stop climate action and she says um because of the energy crisis you know because of the war in ukraine how fuel prices are rising and um, that we need to suspend this all-consuming desire to achieve net zero again it's an argument that's it's not particularly sound because in fact what's happening with the war in Ukraine and you know the fact that Russia is sort of holding Europe hostage to the gas it supplies having you know shut down Nord Stream 1 this week allegedly for maintenance but people are quite worried that could be extended the way most people are looking at that is saying this means we need to focus even more on renewable energy in other words go faster towards a clean clean energy go faster towards net zero because it will give you energy security not just good for the planet but good politically as well so those are two of the more extreme positions of the candidates well um it's interesting that the more mainstream candidates are not talking about this at all and you've written an interesting piece this week about the influence that the european research group continues to have over over this leadership election obviously the crossover between uh, members of the erg and those tory backbenchers who are very skeptical about uh, zero carbon targets is is huge do you think that the more mainstream candidates are fearful of of that group and aren't willing to put their head above the parapet and defending what was achieved at COP26? I think there's certainly an element where they're fearful of that group on everything, <laughs> you know, not just climate, but also, you know, their position on tax, their position on Brexit, you know, you can't say the B word and say have any negative consequences attached to it. You know, it is interesting the way uh, the ERG is basically the, the beating heart of the Conservative Party now and everyone is, is too frightened to stand up against it. I think this is certainly true also on climate. But you know, climate I think also um, hasn't necessarily been, you know, a major priority for the Conservative Party for some time. Because, you know, although I have read some articles claiming that um, Boris Johnson was a climate champion. I would dispute that. And in fact, there was a report by the Climate Change Committee um, last month, in fact, 
that said, you know, uh, the government's targets um, um, were all good and well, but the policies are major failures and they're not being implemented correctly to get us to net zero. So I don't think, you know, that there is an overriding um, concern in the Conservative Party about the climate. The mainstream candidates haven't said a lot. I mean, it is interesting, I think, that, for example, Chris Skidmore, who is the chairman of the Environmental All-Party Parliamentary Group, he has actually come out, I think it was today, on Twitter supporting Rishi Sunak. And he said that he had quizzed all the candidates on climate during the hostings, because it seems, you know, that that wasn't a major priority, but he quizzed the candidates and he came up with a conclusion that Rishi was the best one and he decided that he gave the best response on net zero and he spoke passionately on the environment, the countryside and sustainable farming. The other, um, the other people, his conclusion was that Suella and Suella Braverman and Tom Tuggenhot wanted to move back the net zero target. So that's quite negative. Um, Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordant and Liz Truss all said yes to the net zero target. But again, you know, we're early days. We don't know what policies they would bring in. And Kemi Bamnock obviously wants to change the target and make it more accountable and look at the delivery methods and, you know, is, is going very heavy on the cost. So, you know, it does seem that Rishi has got some backing from some environmentally minded MPs, but it, it's not the top issue at all. Um, and again, you know, it's probably also because they're very aware that they're speaking also, you know, to the membership already and one wonders if climate will actually be their main concern or will they more be more concerned about tax that does seem to be the dominant issue now yes and i suppose they're only gonna you know as we're on this race to number 10 and a leadership race they're only really going to talk about issues that they think there's going to be an appetite for um and it doesn't seem sadly that climates as you've have you said and written about that climate's hugely up there um, but somewhere where it is quite high on the agenda for obvious reasons is, as you've written about, in, in Greece and in Athens. You write that last year Greece faced its worst heat wave in 30 years. The prime minister called it the greatest ecological disaster that they've had in decades. What's what's happening this year? Is this year going to be even worse again or is it going to be a case of matching last year, which still isn't isn't ideal at all? Well, yes. I mean, last year, we all remember those apocalyptic scenes, you know, mm. people trapped on the beaches, the flames coming closer. It was like a horror movie and um, very dystopian. Already this year, you know, it's not looking good. We're on our second heat wave in Europe, actually, in continental Europe. There was one already in May and June, where, which was, you know, it, that's matching the global trend. In other words, heat waves are becoming coming earlier. They're coming more severe and they're more intense. So in Greece, we've already had some fires. There were fires last week in Evia, the second largest island, and also some near Athens. And um, the temperatures uh, were in the high 30s when I was doing the piece last week. And um, they've already, the European Union has uh, jumped into action because there was a lot of criticism of the Greek government last year not being able to cope with the scale of the disaster. So um, the European Union's civil protection mechanism has sent um, a 200-strong European force of firefighters, including Romanians, Bulgarians, some from Moldova, I think, um, also um, to help fight against the fires that are likely to start. And they're already starting. And very sadly, one of these um, firefighting helicopters staffed by these um, European forces crashed um, just this week while it was battling, coming back from battling a fire on the island of 
Samos and two people were injured and one was missing. So, you know, it's already started in Greece. They're preparing for a summer that's just as bad as last year. And unfortunately, this is the trend that we're seeing across Europe and across the world. Claire, uh, uh, apologies if you can't answer this. Um, it's possibly no reason why you should. But I wonder if in mainstream Greek politics, uh, the climate is a much bigger issue uh, than it is here as a, as a result of this kind of thing. Certainly, I think there was a uh, there is a heightened awareness. I don't think you could not have that after what happened last year. I mean, also, you know, um, Athens is one of the most densely populated cities in Europe. I think the third most densely populated. And, you know, people in Athens saw the flames coming closer. Their city was threatened and there was a lot of criticism of the government. And um, what we saw after that was they created the post of climate change minister. So, you know, and they've now got a chief heat officer. So institutionally, they're putting in place structures to deal with this, to answer the calls for more government action. I also know that a survey was recently carried out where people in Athens cite uh, 63% of those surveys said that they were very worried about how climate change is affecting their personal wealth and health. The problem is some with some of the people, um, the chief heat officer who I interviewed for my piece, she said what's happening is people are worried, but it's not yet translating into real political action. So there's criticism of the government when the disasters happen, but it doesn't seem to translate into a mass movement at the polls, which I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, there, there's very few countries where, you know, despite the extreme weather, and we're talking about the heat waves in the past couple of years, but also look at those floods in Germany and Belgium, the hundreds of people killed last year. And yet, while the Greens have been elected as part of the coalition in Germany, you're not seeing a huge wave of support for environmental political groups across Europe. So to some degree, you know, Greece is the same. People worry, they're worried about their health, they're worried about how much is costing them the loss of income, but it's not translating into something really definitive um, when people go to the polls and vote for leaders. Well, you picked up there on sort of wealth and health and, and who can afford this and that and they're worried about income and you write in your piece that the Athens chief heat officer which I think is the most amazing title but that's just another issue but that she was worried about what this would mean for poorer communities who can't afford things and mechanisms to tackle this they can't afford cooling is this going to be a case where and you touched on this but as with many issues is there a danger that issues with climate and environmental issues will further widen the gap in not only in in Greece but across Europe between the have and the have-nots the richest and the poorest as the effects of this start to take hold I think that's certainly true yes um the chief heat officer she is Europe's first chief heat officer Eleni Miravilli um but she's um and she's based in Athens but she's also working um, and advising other European cities to help them also deal with it, particularly in Southern Europe, obviously, where this is all happening. And she, yes, is very concerned about the social kind of equity issues involved in heat waves. So they during the heat waves they 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 um they worry that the people who um are poor, the lower income people, will not either have air condition 
conditioners to help cool their home or they won't be able to afford to use them it's a bit like eat or heat here right i mean and this is going to be happening now during the summer in other countries because with fuel prices spiking not everyone can afford to turn their air conditioners on all the time so you have that inequality as well there's also you know there's going to be a financial cost for the whole of greece because of this because if they get heat waves every year in july and august that's going to devastate their tourism industry so that will increase poverty across the board because that's one of the most important earners for Greece and people just won't come if they think that there's a danger of forest fires across uh, across all of Greece. So Eleni Miravilli, her job is to try and combat some of this and they've come up quite a, a lot of innovative solutions in Athens including you know a system to categorize heat waves. Now heat waves apparently, I didn't know this before I wrote the piece, but they're quite idiosyncratic Cratic, idiosyncratic because they don't they they're they're quite individual to their location and their context but she because her job is funded by the adrian arch rockefeller resilience center they've got a bunch of scientists and what they do is they grabbed a load of data about heat waves across the road the the world on temperature you know what was happening before what was happening afterwards mortality and they've come up with a categorization system of one two and three depending on severity and this allows them to predict um the kind of consequences of heat waves and they're spreading this information to other cities so i know they're using it for example in spain and in spain and some other places are actually naming the heat waves as well to give them that kind of added um, I guess public, so that public awareness will be increased in the way that we do with hurricanes and storms. Some of the other things they're doing to try and help um, ease the burden of heat in Athens is they've got spe- a special app which allows people to calculate their personal risk in terms of their health, where their location, their gender. They're also uh, the app also tells you what's the coolest route if you're trying to get from A to B. It will show you. You know, there's a red line for the quickest route and a blue line for the coolest route. And it'll also tell you where the cooling, uh, the cooling stations are that are set up in, in, in times of extreme heat so that people can just cool down. Obviously, that's very important also for vulnerable and perhaps poorer populations who might not be able to cool down at home. But the whole issue of how this increases inequality it's not just within Greece. I mean, you know, you can look across the world as well, you know, in terms of the climate is changing for everyone it's changing here we're having heat waves here there's a near famine in somalia there's you know um they've had record uh, electricity demand in texas because people are turning on their air conditioners so much this summer already and it is the people who are least able to cope who are being hardest hit in some of these places so the poorer people and that's why you know it's such a shame that countries like the UK who have resources could be global leaders on this, but instead we're all sitting here just having some kind of beauty pageant, which seems like it's never going to end and it's some kind of trapped in a nightmare, you know, episode of Survivor, instead of looking at the actual survival issues of the planet. Um, when we hear about things like apps and guides to how you get to a place that's cooler, Are we in a place now um, where this is just something uh, that governments accept that we have to manage, that these that these heat waves are here to stay and their their job as administrators are to manage it so as few people as possible uh, die, basically, rather than, uh, you know, take on the bigger challenges of, of 
how this could possibly be rolled back or, you know, scientifically, are we where we are now? I think that's a really good question. And, and you know, it's one that, for example, Eleni Miravilli, she grapples with this because her job is kind of got many facets to it, but she's trying to help people deal with the heat. She's also trying to design a city where there'll be fewer emissions. So, you know, that is the conundrum, isn't it? You have to accept that this is happening now and you've also got to try and cap the damage being done by humanity to the climate. The problem is we've probably already gone past the point where we can, you know, return Europe to the sort of temperatures we had before. Um, the, the Earth's surface was nearly 1.2 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels last year, but in Europe, the temperature rise is more than 2 degrees. So, you know, we're already moving at a quick pace. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the global authority on climate change, you know, it's... It, it's kind of running out of dire adjectives for each of its each new report. You know, it, it, the world has failed to cap emissions so far. The, the, the promises being made by governments are not strong enough. And so almost in a way, they now, I think in a recent report, they said there was a 50-50 chance that we're exceeding 1.5 degrees warming in the next five years. This is devastating. And it's also, you know, almost baked in now, excuse the pun. But, you know, the consequences of that are quite extraordinary and yet as you say we seem to be accepting it now by creating ways of living if you like we're adapting to these higher temperatures but a study for the eu for example found that if global warming is capped at 1.5 degrees hot weather could kill 30,000 people in europe um, by 2100 if it gets up to three degrees, and there are a lot of people who believe we are heading that way, we're definitely heading towards a two degree rising anyway, if we don't um, really come good on the promises we've made on the missions across the world. But if it goes up to three degrees, that death toll could be around 90,000 by 2100. So, you know, there is an element where people are already you have to adapt to the current situation, right? You can't just have heat waves and say, oh, hopefully, you know, it'll get better. You have to adapt to it. But, you know, at the same time, environmentalists would say that this adaptation also has to go hand in hand with radical efforts to bring down greenhouse gas emissions, because otherwise, frankly, the outlook, you know, I think the UN Secretary General called it a code red, and that's where we are now. That is really quite a scary and stark picture you've painted there um you write and you say about uh the chief heat officer elena miravilli working out how she can build essentially cities to cope with this heat and how you know they're going to be in the future sort of look at the innovations if any are going to work um why is it that cities are being so badly affected worse than other areas you write that temperatures are rising twice as fast than other areas do we know exactly why this is and the reasons that have caused this and also is there then a fear that it's only a matter of time before it's rising this fast in all areas well i think it's all got to do with um the materials used in cities so 
you know, in cities you have glass, cement, concrete, steel, everything that's used in the buildings and in the roads, they all attract heat and they store it, you see. And then usually they radiate it at night. But when you have a heat wave, um, this doesn't happen so effectively. And so the temperature stays very high at night. And in fact, that's actually where one of the biggest dangers is, because when we go to bed at night, we're supposed to, our body is kind of relaxing and recovering from the stresses, the heat stresses of the day. And if the temperatures don't drop, that becomes very dangerous, particularly for vulnerable people like children and the elderly or people, you know, pregnant women. Um, and, and, and also there's another um, consequence that I didn't really think about. But when people don't get a good night's sleep, um, accidents at work increase. So, you know, there's all that side of it as well. And so, you know, Athens is a good example. It's very, it's very densely populated. There's a lot of cement and asphalt and it's, it's really designed around cars is what Eleni was telling me. Um, either whether they're parked, a lot of public spaces are dedicated to either parked cars or moving cars. And um, the green areas in the city are very unevenly distributed. So some areas have good, uh, a good amount of green so trees or parks but other areas lack them so one of the things to think about I mean and and to your question of whether this is inevitable that all cities become you know steaming cauldrons in the summer work can be done and this is what she's trying to do but it's radical I mean her idea is that Athens needs to lose its cars cars need to be out of Athens now obviously that's hugely political it's difficult to do but ultimately she said that's what has to happen and um, the other things you can do include you know a lot of what they call blue and green infrastructure so green infrastructure is obviously trees forest fields that kind of thing but um, Eleni said for example that it's not enough to just plant a line of trees because actually at the moment the trees are suffering from a huge amount of heat stress because even if you have a line of trees you have all these non-permeable concrete and cement materials around them so they're actually suffering in the extreme heat so she's saying you need to dig up whole streets and you know put down proper soil so that you create the biodiversity that can sustain trees even during the heat and hopefully those trees then will be contributing to lowering the temperatures the other things you can use is water you know water features within the city to help bring the temperatures down so it can be addressed and actually across the world there's a lot of innovation going on in tokyo they're using wind tunnels you know to funnel air to the hottest areas um I know that in Colombia, for example, there's a, I think it was in Medellin, where they um, rejuvenated the old canals uh, that had run through the city that had become sort of dens of iniquity for drug dealers and stuff. But they, they put water back in them, they planted trees, and that substantially cooled the temperature of the whole city. So, you know, and other places are using special materials to on roofs to cool the city and to kind of keep the heat away. So... It's not inevitable that humanity can't cope with this. You know, we should be able to adapt, but you need, you know, you need the political will. And, and I guess below that, you need grassroots people saying, come on now, you really have to do this because it's affecting our lives. It's affecting our pockets. So, you know, so climate has to become the major political issue in order to drive that transformation of cities. Thanks, Claire, for joining us. To read her piece in full, pick up a copy of our summer special edition, issue 300, in shops today or visit theneweuropean.co.uk. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. 
Thanks again to Klani Hanela for coming back to the podcast. You can read more from Class Piece in our special summer edition of The New European in Shops Today. And you can access all of Class articles online at theneweuropean.co.uk. Before the Hall of Shame, a reminder of something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's rather brilliant. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's a superb listen. Two seasons are available now and can be found wherever you got this podcast. And now it's time for the Hall of Shame. It's the home of putrid pundits, malevolent ministers and people who just get our goat generally. Nadim Zaharway is in the Hall of Shame this week. He said on LBC that he would welcome back Boris Johnson to the Cabinet. To which my response would be the same if someone asked if I was, as his campaign slogan asks, ready for Rishi. No. It's a good job that Nadim Zahawai is no longer in the race. Speaking of Rishi Sunak, he's also in the Hall of Shame. A clip resurfaced this week, as they tend to do around leadership campaigns, of the former Chancellor saying in the 2001 BBC documentary, Middle Classes, The Rise and Sprawl, that I have friends who are aristocrats. I have friends who are upper class. I have friends who are working class good of him really he then added at the end that he wasn't working class with the same instinctive horror that i would display if someone asked me if i watched love island but with 88 votes rishi won the first round of the leadership race despite the non-dom status and boris johnson shaped scandals that have surrounded him to steal a joke that's been used on this podcast before perhaps he can go and celebrate with a bottle of non-dom perignon bob stewart joins him in the hall of shame on Times Radio, the MP for Beckenham said he was backing Penny Morden because of her bravery. When asked to give, a link, give an example, he said that on the diving reality TV show Splash, she did a belly flop before going back to the diving board to give it another go. Well, I've never heard of political bravery quite like it. But to be fair, she's not the first politician to face some issues upon jumping in at the deep end. And I imagine she won't be the last. But I do have to say that my favourite politician on a reality TV show remains Nadine Dorries on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. In one of her Bush Tucker trials, she and the actress Helen Flanagan had to survive 10 minutes underground with jungle creatures in a locked coffin. Helen lasted five seconds. And in fairness, I don't know if I could face much longer in that closer proximity to the culture secretary. Next up in the Hall of Shame is the new Northern Ireland Secretary, Shailesh Vara, who was appointed to Boris Johnson's new IKEA cabinet last week, following the resignation of Brandon Lewis, a man who always looked permanently on the brink of dozing off. Not that Vara is much of an upgrade. Following his appointment, it emerged at the weekend that he was notorious in the Northern Ireland office for a five-month stint there as a junior minister, where he once asked an official whether he needed a passport to go to Derry. There's also room in the Hall of Shame for Tatler magazine, the in-house journal for Britain's aristocracy, which this week published its social power index, its league table allegedly showing where the real power lies in British society, and topped it with Charles and Camilla, with uh, the Marquess and Marchioness of Bath, or Bath, I suppose, coming in at fourth place. For those of you asking where the fashion designer Erdem Morelioglu came in, he is, of course, the seventh most powerful person in Britain. It's another world. But finally, we must find space for Raymond Chisti, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Affairs, who this week launched and ended a wonderfully quixotic bid for the Conservative Party leadership. The MP, who I had literally never previously heard of, 
launched its bid on Monday with a video showing a loan in a field and which concluded abruptly mid-sentence. He then ended his bid on Wednesday, having failed to attract a single supporter among fellow MPs, saying, having only started my campaign two days ago, I have given everything I possibly can in this period to step up and serve our great country, one to watch in the future. That was the New European Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe. Oh, and give us nice reviews and lovely ratings. Please do listen to our podcast, The 27. It's available in the New Europeans podcast channel. And don't forget about Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast. It's another one available from the New European, and they're both excellent listens. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, please join us by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers, if you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. In the meantime, you can join our Facebook readers group and you can follow us on Twitter at The New European. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.